We are getting close to the end, and in this session, not this first hour, but this session will complete the exegetical portion of the course, and then we'll go back and pick up those areas of hermeneutics that we skipped over at the beginning, because I wanted to get us into the text as soon as we could. So we just laid kind of the essential foundation by laying out hermeneutics principles at the beginning. So we'll continue and we'll deal with things like history. We'll look at the different approaches. We'll also give a lot of attention to particular genres of scripture. We've been mentioning it all along and we'll go into detail on those next week. So, let's complete the exegetical process today. We've looked at observation. What is in the text? You want to be careful to observe everything in there. The more careful you are, the better will be the next stage. So, observation includes taking notice of every detail that you can in the biblical text. Using perception, not just looking at words per se, but beginning the process of thinking about them, perceiving what they mean. And that leads to beginning to understand the meaning. What does it mean? It's called interpretation. We completed that last time. And we said the bottom line for interpretation is seeking what the author intended or the author's willed meaning the intended meaning of whatever author you may be reading in the Bible. That leads to the third stage we call application. How does it work? And we'll spend most of this session on application. Let me remind you, I gave you the historical background of the scientific method. Scientific method actually comes out of this exegetical process, not the other way around. So everything that we are doing, you could classify as treating scripture scientifically, if you will, or using the same methods that scientists use in observing the natural realm. And I drew the analogy of science and exegesis in that the first stage is observation. We completed that stage. Scientist observes phenomenon in nature. We are observing and want to be as careful as a scientist in observing the text. Last time we completed generalization, the second stage of the scientific method, where you begin by forming a hypothesis, and in exegesis you form an initial interpretation And as you go back and forth from observation to interpretation, you continually refine that interpretation. And just as the scientist eventually comes up with a theory, and then in science, if they are on the right track, becomes scientific law. So also in the interpretive stage, you have confidence that your interpretation is correct because it aligns with orthodoxy. There's a third stage, verification. That, in science, is the the stage where you test your hypotheses to see if it has validity. And in exegesis, part of the interpretive stage is also substantiating the conclusions you've come to, substantiating the work that you've done. 
And you do that by checking other sources. This is where commentaries come in. We talked a little bit about commentaries last time. And now, after you have some confidence in your interpretation of the passage, in uh, the natural realm, we utilize the scientific principles that have been developed by scientists. We call that utilization. And in science, this is what engineers do. They take principles of science and apply them in building things, whether they be highways or machines or engines or computers or whatever. Engineers design using principles of nature. This corresponds in exegesis to application. Where now we're going to utilize the understanding that we gain from the biblical text to have application to our lives. And on further, you have the construction stage of the things that engineers design. Engineers are usually intimately involved in the construction phase as well. And the corresponding area, we call that exposition. In other words, once you've studied a biblical passage and once you understand it, once you've applied it to yourself and thought of applications for others that we'll get into, now you want to communicate that to an audience. We call that exposition. So that's the analogy we've been drawing all along. So let's take a look at application. And let me give you a little introduction to application. This actually, application of Scripture is the goal of the interpretive and observational phase. So what we are doing in exegesis is not stopping at just that intellectual understanding. We want to go beyond simply knowing what the text is telling us. And what God intends is that the biblical text have an impact upon us. And we are to be transformed by the biblical text. That's application. So if you just simply do exegesis to the point of the interpretive phase, then actually you have not completed the entire exegetical process. So application is very important. The bottom line of application is obeying the word. The bottom line for observation is perceiving what's in the text. The bottom line for interpretive phase is seeking the meaning the author intended. And now that I understand the the intent of the author, now I can clearly obey the word. That's what application involves. So that's what we want to focus in on. So in application... It takes the product of our study. So that study, we focus on mastering the word in terms of understanding. Mastering the word includes handling accurately the word of truth, as it says in Second Timothy. Handling accurately the word of truth. So we take that accurate handling and the understanding of the word To the next phase, in an application, the word now is mastering me. So we try to master the understanding that the author intended, and the applicational phase is letting the word master us, or shape, or impact, or transform us. That's what application is all about. 
So the purpose of it is to make us wise unto salvation, as Second Timothy 3.15 indicates, which several passages as well emphasize that aspect. So that's what application is all about. Next, we want to look at a biblical basis. And we have a lot of passages that we can look at that encourages us along the area of application. Let's look at some of the central passages, just so that we have a clear biblical basis for application. And you might even think of some. Can you think of perhaps some some passages that encourages along the lines of application? Put off and put on. Oh, yeah. Very good. Chapter 4, exactly, yeah. Putting on the new nature, putting off the old, and the corresponding parallel passages in Colossians. Yeah, very good. That Ephesians passage. There's lots of them like that. Probably the central passage, well, before we get there, Let's take a look at Matthew 4. Would somebody look Matthew 4 up? And I want you to notice something there. Notice what Jesus does in this passage. And at the heart of it is Satan. This is the temptation of Christ. Satan quotes Scripture to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging Jesus to apply a passage in Psalm 91. But why does Jesus not apply that passage? Well, it's a faulty application. Who's got it? You want to read it? Go ahead, Mark. Uh, But he answered and said... That's Jesus' answer. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Keep reading. Through seven. And he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you see the temptation there? Satan quotes Scripture. Now Jesus had just quoted some scripture, so Satan kind of just throws scripture back in the face of Jesus and said, well, here's the passage that you can apply to demonstrate that you're the Messiah. And if you do this, this scripture assures that the angels will protect you, will catch you as you jump off the pinnacle of this temple. This will be a magnificent uh, display of your Messiahship. And everybody will see that you, in fact, are Messiah. Well, what's wrong? It's a misapplication. And Jesus turns around and quotes another scripture, and he's getting at the heart of what Satan is attempting to do here. Instead of obeying Satan, he's committed to obeying God. And, yes, that will apply to Jesus Christ. That's Psalm 91. But it does not apply in terms of recklessly just testing the Lord. It's as you are faithful to the Lord, the Lord will in fact protect you. And that would include the Messiah as well. So it's a faulty application. And this stresses the possibility of misapplying scriptures. Now, the Old Testament also encourages 
us along these lines, and rather than looking it up, we just read uh, Deuteronomy 30 to you, verses 15 and 16. And this is a constant theme in the law. It says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep, in other words, not just understanding Scripture, not just knowing it, but keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. So the encouragement there is keeping the law, in this case, addressed to Israel. Now remember, we're not under the law, we're under grace whole area that uh, we can talk about in terms of hermeneutics, but at this point, the stress of that is keeping or obeying or observing. The central New Testament passage is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19 through 27, and let's all turn to that one and walk through that, and I'm not going to give you a complete exposition of it, but let me just give you a quick overview of it because of what it stresses in... Uh, that context. In James 1, 19, the central, or you might even say the theme verse of the whole book, and you could even outline the book. Remember I gave you several other verses similarly? Remember the Revelation 1, 19 passage that gives you a breakdown of the whole book? What was the other one I gave you? I gave you Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 gives you a summary of all of the book of Acts. Uh, Romans uh, 16 and 17 give you a summary of the whole book of Romans. In the book of James, this verse is very similar in that it gives you an outline of the whole book of James. At least one way of looking at the book. Would some of you begin reading and let's just kind of go around. Jim, do you want to start us off? Read verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Okay, that's it. You could outline the whole book. The first part is quick to hear. And the emphasis of that aspect of the book, quick to hear, after somewhat of an introduction, which is verses 1 through 18, that runs all the way through the end of chapter 2, from verse 19 to the end of chapter 2. The emphasis is being quick to hear after the little brief overview there. Actually, it would probably begin in verse 21, because verse 20 goes with it. Just kind of an expansion. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So those two verses, how do you achieve the righteousness of God? This is our responsibility in the midst of testing. The whole book deals with living in adversity, living in the midst of persecution or testing or difficulty. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, how we should respond, first of all, to testing. And then the rest of the book is an exposition of the responsibility in the midst of trials. And then he gives us this little introductory, the essence of the responsibility is this goal of righteousness, the righteousness of God, achieving the righteousness of God in life. And anger doesn't do it. So we have to be quick to hear. 
And that runs from verse 21 through chapter 2, verse 26. And then slow to speak, that is emphasized in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And then the rest of the book deals with the last phase of uh, slow to anger. You see that theme worked out. And in James 19 and 20, you have the essence of it. Would uh, you want to read verse 21 there? Therefore lay aside all filthiness and all glass flow of wickedness, and receive with means the implanted word which is able to save the soul. Okay, there's two things in that verse. Real quickly, one is we have to get rid of those things that stand away of achieving that righteousness of God. Those obvious things that are sin, basically. And there's a positive. The second thing is receiving the word implanted. And we could exegete that word implanted. It's essentially what we are doing in this course. We are getting to the heart and the essence of the meaning of very detailed study of God's Word. The Word implanted such that it becomes part of us, and the only way that it becomes part of us is if we complete the whole phase of the exegetical process, and the emphasis will be in applying it. That's what James is going to get into. So he says, the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And Patricia, you want to read verse 22? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And that's the heart. How do you achieve the righteousness of God? How does the word implant, what does it mean to have the word implanted? And it's not just listening. It's not that, and in the first century, the way most believers received the word was through hearing. Bibles weren't readily available. In fact, even the writings of the apostles, until they were copied several times, were not available to the everyday believer. So in the synagogue, they would read the scrolls and copies of scrolls of Scripture. So most people learned the word through hearing. Today, we could substitute the word not only hearing, but reading as well, because Bibles are readily available to us. But what does hearing involve? This is the heart of it all. Hearing, true hearing, or hearing from a biblical perspective, includes doing. So the heart of this whole thing is being doers of the Word. Being doers of the Word. And the rest is just an exposition of this and motivation and encouragement along these lines. So prove yourselves to be doers, not just hearers. And in fact, in verse 22, to cut short, the application stage is actually deception. If we think we understand a passage and it's only intellectual understanding, that's deception. That's not the full intent of what God intends. Mark, do you want to read verse 23? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. Keep reading. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Okay. He gives an illustration. And you can kind of put yourself in the illustration here. 
think in terms of you get up in the morning, you're kind of rushed, you're looking at your clock, you're running a little bit late, you women halfway put on your makeup, look at your face, and men don't even do that, may shave perhaps, wash their face, but the whole process is just a quick boom, 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 I'm out of here. It's not the careful, okay, I need to evaluate my life. I need to have this quiet time to think through what God may bring to me this morning. Thinking through, how does God want to work in my life? In other words, it's not a careful observation. It's just this quick look. It's my hair halfway combed. I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm on my way to work or whatever activity you're involved in. That's the illustration here. And what does he say that? The one that is simply a hearer and not a doer. He's like this guy that looks at his natural face in a mirror and he looks quick, he's gone, and has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, he has not made any evaluation in terms of where he needs to be spiritually, where he's at spiritually, what changes God needs to make there. That's the illustration. Gregory, you want to read uh, verse 25? But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Okay, that's what God desires. That's the life that God wants to bless. Is the person that doesn't take that quick look but sits down and thinks through, and he's looking at the, what is it, the law of liberty, in other words, Scripture, letting Scripture reflect who he is, rather than just a quick look in a mirror. So he's contemplating, how do I need to implement the things that I'm learning in Scripture? That's the kind of man that God is looking for. That's complete and full exegesis is taking it to the applicational stage. Make sense? And he adds to that in the last couple of verses. Let's complete that. Don't want to leave Josh out there. So why don't you complete the passage 26 and 27. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Okay, so he just adds to this idea of what true spirituality is all about, what true religion is like. True religion is taking action. In other words, putting to work the principles that Scripture lays out. So that's the central passage. And it's a pretty strong passage. This, basically, is the beginning of James's exposition in this whole area of our responsibility in the midst of adversity. It's having the Word available in our hearts to be able to respond rightly to whatever circumstance. So that's what he starts off with in the body of the letter of James. So, that's James 1, 19-27. Notice Jesus himself... This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We won't read the whole passage, but let me give you a snippet of it. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. You don't need to turn there. Just This is real familiar. Verse 24. 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. This is the conclusion to this great sermon that Jesus has just preached, the Sermon on the Mount, where there were perhaps hundreds of people gathered, listening. This is early in his ministry. He's become somewhat popular and he's laying out principles for those that are waiting for the coming of the kingdom. The theme of the kingdom is prominent in the Sermon on the Mount. He's done exposition. He's done teaching. He's given them data. He's given them information. He's stimulated their intellect. And in conclusion, therefore, everyone who hears these words that they just listened to, this is the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, and acts upon them. Application. Maybe compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rest of the verse expands the illustration. He gives two contrasting illustrations. The man that builds on the rock, he's the wise man. When the storms come, in other words, when the issues of life pressure in, because he's acting or he's applying scripture, he has the strength of character to be able to face whatever comes in life. Then the negative illustration is the foolish man who built on sand. When the storms come, he has no foundation. So the foundation is both understanding biblical principles, here's these words of mine, and application of those principles on a consistent basis so that we're building character. That's application. So the Sermon on the Mount... You could also take when Jesus dealt in the upper room with the disciples. He dispatches Judas, so there's only 11. There are several passages there. In chapter 14, the first one there is verse 15. Jesus, remember this is the night before his crucifixion. These are his last words. These are the last exhortations the things that people say on their deathbed, not that Jesus was on a deathbed, but Jesus was going to die in a matter of hours. The words that people speak on their deathbed are listened to carefully. People generally are pretty straightforward in terms of the most important things. And so also in the upper room, we have basically Jesus preparing the disciples for the rest of their ministry. And in that preparation for the rest of their ministry... Verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. It presupposes understanding what he has said, but it's not just the understanding, it's the obeying part. In verse 21, whoever has my commands and obeys them. Notice the two. Having assumes understanding. Having my commandments, obeying is the applicational aspect. So whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So in other words, it's going to have ongoing effect, this attitude of obedience. Verse 24, He who does not love me will not obey my teachings. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So you have the alternative in chapter 14, verse 24. Later on in chapter 15, you are my friends if you do what I command. Notice the emphasis here. 
These are his last words, doing what he commands. Now, if you were to do a word study on uh, the both the New Testament and the Old Testament words for knowing, ginosko is one of the Greek words that's used in the New Testament for to know, the verb to know. That word, yada, is the Hebrew word to know. It corresponds to the New Testament word, ginosko. The idea of knowing is the idea uh, that has implicit in it the idea of knowing by experience, knowing by doing. So it's knowing by experience, not simply intellectual understanding. But ginosko and yada, is the, the point I'm making, is those two words in themselves, in their context, generally in the context has the idea uh, understanding or knowing by experience. So that's the biblical basis for application. Thirdly, let's take a look at principles of application, or what I describe here as particular principles related to application. Number one, and this is a starting point, application is based on interpretation. This is why we want to be careful in our interpretation because if our interpretation of a passage, it can distort, it can diminish, it can even short-circuit application. So this is the whole process that we've been talking about up to this point. Interpretation. So it begins with interpretation. So let's talk a little bit about interpretation. We've been stressing that interpretation, generally there's one understanding of the text. You got that? What is that one understanding that we're shooting for? What the author intended. intended. And when we communicate, we are not generally speaking with a multitude of intentions of ideas that we're communicating. We, we have one thing in mind when we're speaking and communicating. And our goal is to reach that one understanding. That's not the case with application. With application, conceivably, you could come up with an infinite number of applications from the same passage. And in fact, you could come up with applications, not only personal, in terms of many applications from that same passage right now, but as you grow as a Christian and your circumstances change, your applications may also change from the same understanding of that passage. That's what I mean by an infinite number of applications. An example, for example, the... Encouragement in Scripture, be kind to one another. That can take a multitude of forms. You can be kind to an elderly person, you can be kind to a child, you can be kind to an unbeliever, you can be kind to a believer. You can do different kinds of acts of kindness, and they would all be legitimate applications of that one truth of being kind to one another. That makes sense? So, 
there's a multitude of ways that passages can be applied. In fact, I would even suggest an infinite number. So application is far more flexible, if you will, than interpretation. Interpretation, we want to be more precise and confine our understanding to what the author intended. And once you have that foundation, out of that well, if you will, or out of that resource, now you can draw any number of legitimate applications. So that's a difference. So it's based on that one interpretation, but now it can come in many, many, many forms. Application. And it can touch many areas. Interpretation affects our mind or our understanding, our rational nature. Application affects the will. And it can touch on motives, unseen motives. Why do I do those good things? And maybe our motives are not right. We're doing good things, but maybe our motives are wrong, and maybe this passage is convicting me to have better motives behind the good things that I do. It also touches on unseen attitudes. And parents see this all the time. You want certain actions out of your children, but there's two ways that they can express those actions. That reminds me of the Dennis the Menace cartoon. I gotta get it and show it up there. Where Dennis is in the corner. And I think Dennis responds by saying, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Attitudes. And you see that in children. They can conform externally, but they can conform with all the bad attitudes. We're no different. We're just masked a little bit better than children do. So application, and I'm talking about conceivably the same passage could deal with motives. It could also deal with attitudes. And it obviously expresses itself in speech and in actions. Those are more the visible external manifestations. We have the tendency of stressing the external. In other words, I'll clean up my language and I'll put on this external facade of good deeds and good actions. I can probably do that for an hour at a time Sunday morning, but sometimes I'll carry the wrong motives for the the speech and the actions and have bad attitudes for the same. So application deals with all of these areas. Our emphasis is not to change God's message. In other words, allow the Scriptures to speak to us. Don't change God's message. Seeking the author's intended meaning. But rather, let his message change us. That's application. So that's principle number one. Based on accurate interpretation. You just noticed the little cartoon? (laughs) Yeah, let the word, this is kind of God using his word to shape us. The second principle, number two, is seek the timeless truth behind a passage. Seek the timeless truth behind a passage. Remember we talked about 
There are some passages that are local and are designed to deal, particularly in the historical books, to deal with the situation at the time. And one of the passages I used, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac. Well, that's a command, but it's only for Abraham, and it only had a very limited and a particular application to Abraham. But behind that same incident, we can find applications that would be useful to you and I as well. And probably the main application would be a willingness to give up the most important thing of of our lives if that is what God commands us to do, or if that is what God's desire is. It will never be to sacrifice your children, but it will take other forms, and that's what we mean by timeless truth. In other words, every principle of Scripture, or every command of Scripture, there's a timeless truth behind it. In fact, you can apply genealogies. Every passage, there's timeless truths that you can draw application from. So every passage, conceivably, you can draw applications from them. And you can draw applications that are applicable in the 21st century. Can you think of an application you might draw from a genealogy in the book of Genesis? Jim's come up with a real good one from the Genesis 4 genealogy of Cain's descendants. An application is here are the beginnings of the human race and all of them display a sin nature. The sin nature is evident in all of us, so there's the danger. They all died. That's the emphasis of chapter 4. An application I drew was that specific individuals, such that even their names, the names mean very little in some cases in some of these genealogies to us in Chronicles, First Chronicles. But they are so important that God included the very names. The application is God knows us by name. He knows the very hairs on our head and he treats us as individuals. So that's another application you can draw from a genealogy. And I think that would be a legitimate one to draw. Well, what I'm getting at here, timeless truths, let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, how do you come to these timeless truths? Evaluate the original application. In other words, think through the passage and think about how did those original readers, how would they have applied this? In other words, how does this passage impact them back in their lifetimes? What did Paul, if you're in one of his books, what did he intend from the readers that he was writing to? And I think this is key. This this will give you not only the best and the most biblical applications, if you can come up with the application that Paul intended, and then now transfer it to the 21st century. The second thing to do is maybe the specific situation doesn't fit our culture, but look for the principle behind it. What's the principle behind it? Greet one another with a holy kiss. We've used that illustration. Well, does this mean in church Sunday morning, you men just grab that beautiful woman and just give her a holy kiss? May not be appropriate, right? But there's a principle. In other words, what is Paul encouraging when he encourages, is that in the book of Romans, I believe, 
greet one another with a holy kiss. I think it's chapter 16. What's the principle behind that? Yeah, or expressing love or affection or concern for one another. And what was appropriate in the first century was, in fact, to offer a kiss. Now, it's a holy one in that it's it's not overdrawn, it's, it's not inappropriate, all the things that would make it unholy. But the principle behind it is when you gather together, you can express affection towards one another, and there's different ways of doing that. In our culture, uh, a hug is, I think, appropriate in some cases. In other cases, a handshake or uh, maybe even kind words would express the same thing. So you're looking for the principle behind the command, behind the historical, biblical passage. So look for a principle behind it. And once you have discovered that timeless truth, now that's just the next step is the application of that. In other words, now this is what I want to do. This is a, this is how I'm going to express that affection on a Sunday morning. So thirdly, determine what things in a passage are normative. And in some cases, the very words that were expressed to the Colossians or the Galatians, the very words themselves are normative. And sometimes they're not. So you got to determine what is normative and what is not. The things that are normative, those are easy to apply. In other words, do the exact same thing that is commanded. Do not steal. All right, don't steal. Don't take things that do not belong to you. Now, it's broad. It can include not only material things, but it can include other things as well, as Deuteronomy expands when it expands upon that whole idea of stealing. In fact, every one of the commands are somewhat broad and have lots of applications. Just read the book of Deuteronomy. I believe after chapter 5, after Moses receives the Ten Commandments, the rest of the book are an expansion of those Ten Commandments in how they can apply to different areas. So determine what is normative. Some things are easy, like thou shalt not steal, do not commit adultery. Those are pretty clear. Those are normative for the 21st century as well. Other things are not as normative. The Holy Kiss, for example... That's not normative, so you modify it such that it fits the 21st century, and you still do what the command intends in terms of a timeless principle. So that's what we're talking about with timeless truths. So timeless truths, applicable to the original audience, this is your test for whether it's a timeless truth or not. In other words, the original audience could have done that maybe in a different form than today, but they could have applied that passage. And Paul or James or whoever expected them to. And throughout church history or even Old Testament history, that timeless truth could be applied. You could apply it at any period of time in history. And that same truth is applicable today. That makes it a timeless truth. It may take a different form than that Mosaic audience or Isaiah audience or Peter's audience, but the timeless truth would have been applicable. So, principle number one, biblical application based on interpretation. Number two, 
You look for the timeless truth behind the historical situation. And thirdly, now you analyze the contemporary situation. Number three, analyze the 21st century situation. And you're analyzing how you might take that timeless truth and work it out or express it in the culture in which we live in. And for those of you that are mathematically or technically inclined, let me give you a formula here. Timeless truth plus contemporary situation. Add this timeless truth to our situation today, and that equals application. Truth plus contemporary situation equals application. Got it? Now let me give you some cautions. Most of these I've I've observed in terms of watching people attempting to apply passages in real-life situations. And I'm not going to give you all the details, but in some cases I have some vivid real-life situations behind some of these. So, number one that I've got, and this list isn't exhaustive, but it seems to hit some of the major problems that people encounter when they attempt to apply passages. Some people make the application into the principle. There's a danger there, and there's a difference. What is applicable in your situation may not be exactly applicable in somebody else's situation. It's the principle that is applicable, but not the outworking of the principle. That's the application. And I'll give you an example. In this case, and some of the others, I may not give you an example. But I was involved in a church a few, several years ago, where there was a woman that was causing a little bit of problem. Not unusual for this to happen in churches. But she was a good student, rather mature person, mature spiritually, a lot of background, a lot of teaching, a lot of involvement in church things. In her case, her husband had a very good job and always supported the family. So when she came across the passage, Titus 2.5, where it encourages women to be keepers of the home, in her thinking, and for her, the application of being a keeper of the home meant that she had to stay home and did not get out into the workforce and gave full attention to the raising of children. Well, she was causing some problems with some single women that were in unfortunate situations that had to go to work to support their families. It was either that or welfare or or deep poverty or whatever. What she did is she made the application into the principle. The application was women should not work outside the home if they have young children. That's the application. The principle is broader being keepers of the home. That's the principle. Okay? Women that work can still apply that, and particularly those women that almost had no other option, they did the best they could, and they were still keeping their home. It wasn't like they were neglecting it. They just had more limited time, less time, limited time, than what this woman had because of her fortunate circumstances. She turned the application into the principle, so any woman 
that was working, she would confront them and basically put them on a guilt trip and say, well, God will provide. You, you just need to trust him. You, you know, you need to stay home. Well, she was making the application into the principle rather than letting the principle express itself differently in different circumstances. And this became such a problem that we had to step in and resolve some issues and try to set things straight and do a little bit of explanation concerning what she was doing. And she, well-meaning, I mean, she was attempting to hold people accountable. She was intending to encourage spiritual growth, you know, all the good things, but she wasn't able to see through the fundamental problem that she was causing in terms of applying Scripture. So, be careful. The way God may express an application in your life may not be the same as God will express the same principle in somebody else's life. The application may be different. Principle is the same. Secondly, and this almost applies to that same situation, we have a tendency of imposing our application on others. Crystal clear to us, we are certain this is what God wants for us. Well, we may be further along in the Christian walk, and God may be dealing with another individual, maybe at a totally different area. Uh, this is This is also the problem of legalism sometimes where we're imposing applications on people that are not as far along as we are. Maybe God is applying this principle, and we've been in the Lord 30 years, and this new believer is still dealing with language, you know, just cleaning up their language and some of these other more overt things in the Christian walk and some of these other things that God will deal with in 30 years in their life. So we need to be sensitive in terms of imposing any application on others. We can suggest things, we can encourage godliness, but we need to let the Holy Spirit basically apply Scripture in the lives of others. Thirdly, another caution is all of us have to battle the hardness of heart, number three. There's always the resistance of the heart to do what God wants. We need to be on guard for that at every turn. And particularly if you are in the Word to the extent that we are talking about here in the exegetical process, we're deep in the Word, so there's lots of things that the Lord may want to deal with. We need to constantly be on guard of the hardness of the heart. Number four, sometimes another caution is this lack of insight. This goes back to the interpretation. Just not fully understanding a passage Sometimes we can draw inappropriate applications. That's possible as well. I gave you the example of even Jesus Christ was tempted by Satan to misapply a clear biblical passage, but either the timing was not right or the situation was not right. So lack of insight. Some people think application is, a, is only an emotional response. And I think pastors probably very often, oh, that message touched my heart. Well, that's good, but if it only touched your heart, then it's not application. Application is, that message convicted me to change in these three areas. That's application. 
So some people equate an emotional response, and by the time they've gone from the parking lot, that emotion has already dissipated. So it's not application. Application is after you leave the parking lot, and now you go home, and before you uh, sit down to eat, you maybe write down a strategy, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this in this way. Because that message that I heard convicted me of this area that I need to change. Similarly, number six, some think that, oh, I understand this passage, therefore, application is automatic. So that's an intellectual response. So if it's simply an intellectual response, it's not application. So you need to take it one step further. Not simply an intellectual response. So, six cautions. These are not exhaustive. You might even come up with more. Number one, don't make the application the principle. Let the principle stand on its own. The applications, remember there might be an infinite number of them, different, how they might apply to different people. Don't impose what God has convicted you. Another person may not be the same place where you're at. Thirdly, beware of hardness of heart in particularly ourselves. Number four, oftentimes if I don't quite understand that passage, I may find an inappropriate application. Number five, just because it touched my heart, an emotional response, that's not the same as application, nor number six is simply an intellectual response. Number five, what are the areas to apply? And it always begins with me. Application starts with how does this passage apply to me personally? What does God want to shape in me In what ways does God want to transform me? Does he want to convict me? Does he want to move me? Is there some area that I need to uh, step out and minister to someone else? Am I aware now of something that I was not fully aware of or was suppressing that I need to change? And once God is working in us and thoroughly transforming us, and moving us from putting off, as Beverly suggested in terms of putting off and putting on, and God is doing that in me, now I can more effectively impact those that are closest to me. We call that family. Some wives and some husbands sometimes read this passage and can figure out a hundred ways how this passage applies to their spouse. (laughs) and are very vocal sometimes. But sometimes if if they just see how it's applying in me, then it can impact them. But as spiritual leaders of a home, uh, both parents should be impacting their children and thinking of applications for them, helping them being able to apply passages. And when people in the church begin to see families that are not only godly, but are expressing and consistently applying, then we can have greater impact on other believers, other church members. 
and churches that are filled with families that are applying scripture and church leaders are attempting to encourage that, then those churches can impact the world and the primary application in the world is through evangelism. Evangelism and living lives that represent the image of Christ. So it starts, these are the areas, starts by application in my life, extends and spills over to applying scripture in the family, and families impact the church, other believers, and encourage them in areas of application, and then the church can impact a lost world. That's application. Let's take a break and come back and we'll look at the last phase of the exegetical process. We call that correlation.